Well, good morning, and uh, welcome everyone to uh, to Willoughby Community Church. Thank you, uh, Bob and Elsie, for reading the scripture this morning. God has given us another beautiful day. It's a beautiful Sunday, and He gave us a beautiful, beautiful day yesterday. Uh, it was the run for H2O. I don't know if uh, Kara Marquine is here. If you are, Kara, would you wave a hand? I think she's upstairs, uh, but. Kara, who works in our office, uh, did the organizing for H2O and uh, just another fantastic, fantastic job. Um, and the purpose of it all was to raise uh, funds for clean water to a village in South Ethiopia. Uh, the goal was uh, a stretch goal of $75,000. They hoped they might make it. Well, the, uh, the count now is eighty-six thousand dollars and counting so let's give her a big hand and I have to say congratulations to uh, Mel Schmaus uh, who ran the 10k is Mel here this morning out there where is she she's back there oh wow stand Mel we just have to have to acknowledge you uh, she ran it in 44 minutes for 10K. And right behind her in second place was Charmaine, her sister. Charmaine, are you here this morning? Oh, let's have her stand as well. Yeah. The younger sister let the older sister win, I think. Is that how it might go? But uh, not sure of your ages, so I won't ask. There is a vehicle out here called, uh, with a license plate, BAW 890. It's a Ford Edge. Your alarm is going off, so you should, probably should go out and attend to that. Marriage. What was God thinking? Yeah. If you're new to us today, uh, we're winding down on the study of the book of Ephesians, a series called Deeper. We uh, embarked last week on a two-part series on marriage, and we'll complete that uh, series this morning we spend a lot of time on verse 21 preparing ourselves by looking at the context. Context is always important. And I think of what's happening in our house these days. Uh, after a lot of years, uh, it's time to paint our house uh, on the inside. And so everything from the ceilings and the closets and the bathroom, every room is having a paint job. And we've been kind of camping out uh, in our home for the last few weeks already. Everything is in disarray. Our garage is full of furniture. They're painting. And our painter has sprayed all of the ceilings, which actually doesn't take very long to spray. But the biggest job is to prepare the ceiling. And so he worked nearly all day a couple days ago to prepare the living room and the kitchen and uh, when he had uh, got it all prepared, it only took two hours to spray, but it took him all day basically to prepare. I feel like that is very similar to what the section that we're talking about. It is the preparation for the actual teaching that Paul wants to give to his Ephesian brothers and sisters. What is the context? What is the writer trying to say to us to prepare us for his primary teaching on marriage? And that's what we did last Sunday. 
Now, if you're catching the second message but didn't catch the first one, may I just remind us of three things that, that we talked about, and I'll just try to say them quickly, but I think they're very important even to be reminded of what God wants to say to us uh, today. So first of all, I encourage you to think biblically as you process this passage on marriage, to think biblically. Over 2,000 years of time have passed uh, from, uh, since this was written from the hand of Paul, and the culture has changed significantly, and it will continue to change. And if we think culturally instead of biblically, you never know where you will end up because it will change on you. The pendulum is always swinging from legalism to liberalism. So culture changes. It always changes, uh, depending upon the generation. We need truth that transcends the generations, and we need truth that transcends the culture. We need truth that moves beyond personal preference and beyond the best of human wisdom to God's wisdom. The second thing that's very noteworthy uh, in the context is the connection of all of these verses back to verse 18 of the same chapter, which says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the fullness of God's Spirit that changes everything. The filling of the Spirit causes us to sing psalms and hymns in our hearts, when the Spirit fills your life, He puts a song in your heart. You have to sing. You have to rejoice because the Holy Spirit is in your life. Secondly, when the Spirit really fills our life, the outflow is that we're grateful, we're thankful. Even when somebody might say to you, how can you be thankful when all of this is facing you? It's because of God's Spirit that's filling you. His Spirit brings into our hearts a sense of gratitude, a thankful heart. But it's the third area that we're particularly interested in. When you come to verse 21, you need to be reminded that this flows out of verse 18. When we are full of the Holy Spirit, it's not hard in our relationships to defer and to serve one another in the Spirit of Christ. It's very difficult to serve one another when we insist on our own rights. Husbands and wives will much more easily defer to one another when we're filled with the Spirit of God. And I think if there's anything that I would say this morning, <laughs> that that probably is the most significant. When we're filled with the Spirit of God, it's not hard to defer to one another. It changes everything. So I just want us to see what truly makes deference possible. How can we be mutually submissive, as verse 21 points out? Well, it's a whole lot easier when Jesus is filling your life, when the Holy Spirit has control of your life. It's not hard to move over and say, hey, I think you got a great idea there. I never thought of that. Rather than, no, it's got to be my way, even if we're not quite as blunt to say it. It's going to be my way. Doris left. is she here today? He is here today. I, I asked her if I could share this. Uh, her husband, John, has uh, been in heaven for five years. Uh, but, but they were part of the early church plant here. 
And uh, one day I had John come to the front of the church and share. I'm not sure what the topic was any longer, but uh, he, he, he started to talk about leadership in marriage. And he said early on in our marriage, we made a decision on how to handle the leadership question in our home. And so he said with a twinkle in his eye that we agreed that Doris would make all of the smaller decisions in life and I would make the major decisions. And he said, now after all of these years of marriage, it turns out that there's never been a major decision. <laughs> oh, we just love John. That sounds like John. He's home and he's safe and secure from all the physical struggles that he had to go through in those last years. Well, the third thing we should be aware of is a couple of terms in the passage. Um, the first is the word submit in verse 21. It gets a lot of negative press these days, as you know. Why? Because, well, it's been abused. Husbands have abused their wives uh, verbally, emotionally, physically. Uh, sometimes it's the other way around. So no wonder there has been reaction. The word for submit is haputaso. And it means to arrange in rank under. It's a military term. It really means to take your post, to take your post. But remember, it's not just to the wife, and it's not just to the husband. It's a mutual hupotasso. It means everybody take your post. What is my post? My post is radical unselfishness. My post is showing deference and respect for the other person. That means as men that we don't dominate over women. And it means as women we don't dominate over men. And then it applies to the whole house table that we talked about last week a little bit. Martin Luther's concept of being this for the whole household. And it applies to the rest of the household, to parents and children, to masters and slaves, to employers and to employees. So what does this word really mean? It means to give way to another. It means to uh, give way to someone else. And I just happened to be reading in Philippians chapter 2 this week, and there it was, the key to the effectiveness of Jesus on this earth. And, and I believe it's the key to our effectiveness on this earth as well. It says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others as well. Philippians 2.5. What does that mean? Well, it means to have the same attitude that Christ had. And here it is, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Uh, you may know the passage, that he humbled himself and he became obedient to God. He died a criminal's death on the cross. So I was just asking the Lord, like, what, what does that mean? What does that really mean for us? And uh, in my journal, I wrote exaltation, elevation, Joy, fulfillment, purpose. You suddenly come alive on the inside because you give yourself away. You, you suddenly come alive and you get excited and you feel so like this is what life is about when you actually give yourself away. I mean, the culture will never tell you that. That's a God thing. 
That's something that God does in our lives. And precisely for Jesus, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Your blessing flows out of submission. Your blessing flows out of submission. It's a God thing. So the first word to come to grips with is hupotasso, or submission, and understanding what that, what that means to give way to another. The other word is the word for head. Uh, in the Greek, it is the word kephal. The word head is found in verse 23, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now here's where we have people lined up on both sides to understand the word. Because kafal can mean source or origin, or it can mean authority or ruler. So scholars will make their pitch on both sides. And we tend to choose the option that we like, and then we gather the evidence for our position. Not really, but, but kind of. How you define the word leads to our views on egalitarianism or complementarianism. And my perspective is that it doesn't really matter which viewpoint you select because eventually, eventually, you have to come back to mutual submission. It's the cardinal issue of life, submission. If one person always has to be right and dominant and can't give way to the other, then it doesn't matter what you are. If you're egalitarian or you understand if the wife is under the headship of her husband just as the husband is under the headship of Christ. When we get to these places in life, we need the bigger picture, and that's Jesus Christ and how he approached submission. Paul said you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So just a, just a little review the text now moves forward to address what submission looks like for the wife and then for the husband. So first to the wives. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so your wives should submit to your husbands in everything. How do we arrive at mutual hupotasso or mutual submission. However you understand headship in these verses, you come back to an understanding of the equality and dignity of both husband and wife. Because in Christ's eyes, there is no male or female in terms of worth and value and equality. Nowhere should the sense of inferiority be ever applied. Galatians 3.28 reminds us that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So husbands, as you lead and partner with your wife, it is with the most utmost of love, not for a moment taking away the dignity or the worth of your wife. One is not more equal than the other. One does not require more dignity than the other. One is not more valuable than the other. There is an equality that transcends the genders. And headship is not a synonym for domineering or tyranny. As the Lord 
calls you to lead and partner. Husbands, if you see your role as putting down your wife, if you see your role as being abusive for whatever reason, it is not right. It is sinful. If you are unfair in your leadership with your wife, it is not right. It is sinful. The opposite is also true. If the wife is domineering and demanding and puts down her husband, that's not right. To be the head of the wife is a huge responsibility. Whichever way you define kafal, head. When a husband makes difficult decisions, he should do, do so with the full counsel of his wife. Because they're partners together. And as the husband leads, he does so with great humility and great dependence on the Lord, realizing his own inadequacies and weaknesses. Now, I know some of you are reading, and uh, some of these words uh, seem a little bit strong, and your mind automatically jumps to an extreme situation where you say, well, what about this? And uh, where some husband demanded something of his wife that was wrong, it was over the top, it was totally off the mark. Did you see those words in everything and cringe? And it's true. Some have landed on those two words and have been way, way out of line. Careful on this one. This is not a phrase to justify taking unfair advantage of our wives. John Stott has a good word about this, and I, I have to quote him because he says it so well. He says, we have to be very careful not to overstate this biblical teaching on authority. It does not mean that the authority of husbands, parents, and masters is unlimited or that wives, children, and workers are required to give unconditional obedience. No. The submission required is to God's authority delegated to human beings. If, therefore, they misuse their God-given authority by commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, then our duty is no longer to uh, conscientiously to submit, but to conscientiously refuse to do so. John Stott. What is he saying? There are limitations. There are boundaries. Marriage is not always a breeze. Have you, have you married people discovered that? Wow. And uh, single people, thank you for your patience for these two Sundays. Uh, I think we can all find some application somewhere in these words that fit our unique situations. Marriage is very challenging and, and very complex because we're bringing together two independent people who perhaps for years have been so accustomed to looking after themselves. And we bring our cultural understandings of where we grew up and now we enter into a relationship. Uh, and it doesn't take a lot of work to have a bad marriage. I mean, you just let, let it go. Just let it drift and just see where it, what happens. And it usually ends up in being a bad marriage. But, but, but it takes a lot of work, a lot of cultivating to have a good marriage. I read the story of a woman that worked in a city uh, uh, and she... She became engaged, and she went to another friend in the same city for some marital advice. And the friend said to her, 
you will find that the first 10 years of marriage are definitely the hardest. Oh, the girl said, how long have you been married? She said, 10 years. 10 years. Do you know why marriage is so hard? It's because marriage involves people. More specifically, it involves people who go into marriage with a different set of expectations. And you have to notice that Paul doesn't get specific on how to work out your cultural differences. Think of this being written 2,000 years ago and it applies to all the cultures that have ever been. Think of the diversity of our world today and we are marrying across cultural lines. We are marrying into marriages, entering into marriages with a partner from another part of the world whose background is so totally different from ours. What if we listened to Paul? What would we learn regardless of culture? Well, to wives, we would hear the message to respect your husband. Transcultural. Transcultural. That's what submission means, respect. The word submit has become so contentious for us, but perhaps not the word respect. If wives respect their husbands, it, it crosses all cultural boundaries. If husbands love their wives, it crosses all geographical and cultural boundaries. So the message can be worldwide. Respect your husband. Love your wife. God doesn't ask the opinion of the ages. He doesn't ask, what do you think about it? Or what do I think about it? He doesn't first check with culture. He doesn't seek the opinion of the highest court in the land. He does, however, give us a pattern that works. And it works because it comes from God. How can you respect your husband? Oh, it's in that little phrase. Verse 22, as to the Lord, as to the Lord. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Respect your husband as to the Lord. Be radically unselfish to your husband as to the Lord. Remember it doesn't say, as Lord, <laughs> you don't worship your husband. It doesn't mean you follow uh, your husband, uh, his every word. As to the Lord means that your humility and your unselfishness towards your husband is in response to your love for the Lord. And when you make a choice to love, even in a tough relationship, you're not only loving that person, but you're also loving the Lord, the Lord Jesus. All of that word submit means to voluntarily surrender to another person's authority, to give a place for that person. It's not something the husband demands from the wife. It's not something he commands from the wife or forces on the wife. That's why the most important part of the verse is the last four words, as to the Lord. Jesus Christ, the supreme master of the universe, had no problem becoming the supreme submitter when he surrendered his will to God's will and died on the cross for us. So mutual submission. How do you translate submission to the wife? It boils down to one important word, and that word is respect. Secondly, husbands. For husbands, this means 
Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. First thing I noticed about the passage is that three verses were attributed to wives, but there are eight verses that are directed toward the husbands. Hmm. Wonder what that's about. I heard about a, a man who was getting a cold shoulder from his wife for a few weeks, and finally uh, he confronted her and said, Admit it, Linda. The only reason you married me is because my grandfather left me $50 million. She said, Don't be ridiculous. I don't care who left it to you. <laughs> As you probably know, there are uh, many different Greek words for the word love. Uh, in, in, in the English language, we use love for just about everything, from loving steak to loving chocolates to loving the paint color or to loving another person. It just depends. The word love in verse 25 is the word agape. That's the highest bar in the Greek love vocabulary. It means seeking the highest good of the other person. And that's the role of the husband, to seek the highest good for his wife. That's how we have mutual hupotasso, mutual submission. Our role is to look out for the highest good for our wife. And oh, isn't that a tall order? How often I fail at that one, to look out for the highest good for our wife. Hey, if the husband does that, though, it seems to me that most wives will say, I can respect who he is, and I want to come alongside him, and I want to serve with him, and I want to lead with him. Where would we find the greatest example of someone seeking the highest good for us? Well, Jesus Christ, of course, because he gave his life for us, for the church. He loved you, and he loved me, and he gave his life, and he died. He died for us. So husbands are to love and to lead like Christ did. I'm just going to point out briefly four ways in, in just a moment. But husbands lead, and as they do, they open up their arms wide for their wives to be free to lead as well. You see, ultimately, both husband and wife will provide spiritual leadership in a home. It has to be both. We certainly need both. But the challenge here is for the husband to not step into the background, as we might tend to do, but to step up and invite his spouse to co-lead. So let's lead this family together. Women, wives, are also leaders. God made them to be leaders also. And he gifted many with the gift of leadership. What are we supposed to do with that? If you, are, if you are gifted as a woman with leadership, what do you do with that? Well, they need us as men to say, come lead, come lead, and lead in all kinds of places and, and, and help us move this forward from point A to point B. So women today are leading in all kinds of, kinds of places, just like men are outside of the home. They lead companies. Women today lead cities, they lead provinces, they lead nations, they lead in our churches, and they are such a blessing. We are so blessed uh, here at church to see women step up in leadership roles and lead so well, and we bless them in their leadership. 
I love to see our staff growing in their leadership, especially the women that we have on staff. We love to see them uh, to move forward and lead so that we can bless them and nourish them and encourage them and cherish them and help them to be everything that God designed them to be. Uh, and that is awesome. And we have a staff that loves to cheer for one another regardless of gender. So what is the role of the husband? Well, how are we to love our wives? Well, Paul, Paul points out here, we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it's a sacrificial love. It's a sacrificial love. And what does that look like? First of all, surrender. He gave up his life for her. And what a thought that is, that when my love is like the love of Christ for, my church, for his church, I give up things for my wife. My submission is to offer up myself for the benefit of my wife. I feel like I'm preaching way over my head at this point. Way over. Good question to ask ourselves, husbands, do I love her enough to die for her? Am I willing to surrender myself for her? Because if our love isn't sacrificial, our wives know it. If we are selfish in our relationship with her, it will have a negative impact. It's just a matter of time. And men, husbands, how about us praying for our wives? Do we kind of forget in the busyness of life, oh, I should really, I should pray for my wife every day for, for, for them to be everything that God wants them to be. Wouldn't that be awesome? The second word is set apart. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Now, some translations, you might be reading from your Bible, to sanctify her so that she is holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. And if you're reading the word sanctify, it simply means set apart. That's all it means. You, you, you sanctified the chair this morning when you came in and you sat on the chair. It means simply that you used the chair for the purpose for which it was intended. It was intended to be sat upon. So when you came in, you sat upon the chair and you set it apart to be used for the purpose of sitting. You set it apart. So the husband is to be graciously aware of his wife and doing everything he can do to help her be a set-apart for who God intends for her to be. You help her fulfill her purposes as a wife. The third word is forgiveness. Washed by the cleansing of God's word. And uh, when we come to Christ, we are forgiven. The past is dealt with. Jesus doesn't uh, keep putting it in our face and saying, well, you goofed up, so you sinned, and here it is again, it's in your face. And husbands, the same truth is applicable for us. Our choice must be forgiveness. I forgive you. I, I don't hold in front of you the sin that happened yesterday. It's, it's behind us. It's gone. Uh, I need the Lord's forgiveness for all the things in my life that fall short. And the Lord is so gracious. Our wives are imperfect. That's true. They chose us. So that was the first sign of their imperfection. 
forgiveness. Husbands, forgive your wives. There will be times when she blows it, and that will be true with you as well. So your role is to forgive and help her grow. I love how Jill Briscoe tells a story, uh, and I'll be brief with this, uh, about her marriage to Stuart. The Briscoes were uh, well-known pastors in a church in Milwaukee for years and years and years. And now they're in their twilight years of life, and um, they preach occasionally. But uh, Jill Stewart was the senior pastor. Jill was on staff. Uh, And Stewart grew up in a home where culturally the woman was uh, not encouraged into leadership. But when he met Jill, he had to do some readjusting in his life. And uh, they worked out how to partner together. And Jill says, he changed and he provided the environment in which I could grow as a wife and a mother and a grandmother and a spiritual teacher and a writer. And she said, we have a hilarious huputasso submission to one another. And then she wrote these words. She said, let me just give you one glimpse into my relationship with Stuart and our submission to one another. She said, Stuart wrote a family letter, probably a Christmas letter to our friends around the world. And he wrote these words, Jill and I are still together and have no desire for anything else. She continues to lose her keys, worry a lot, run in circles, organize the family, overextend, laugh at herself, forget where she is, give people new names, dream dream up new ideas, enthuse people, confuse people, write a lot, talk a lot, pray a lot, and cook occasionally. In other words, she's had a perfectly normal year. Then he writes, I've been busy finding her keys, traveling, telling her where she is, finding her keys, restoring people's original names, finding her keys again, thoroughly enjoying being with her, and eating her cooking. And at the end of the letter, he says, I have to go. Jill has lost her keys and doesn't know where she is. And she's laughing at this letter and saying, you know, that's how we've learned to relate to one another. And he's given me permission to run in circles, organize the family, overextend, dream up new ideas, and lose my my keys over and over again. Forgiveness. And then honor. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Christ will one day present to the Father a church in all of its glory. And we are to likewise honor our wives in a way that demonstrates our love. What is the role of the husband? How are we to love our wives? Well, we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church, namely sacrificially. And then secondly, husbands are to love their wives as they do their own bodies. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Winston Churchill once attended a formal banquet in London. Everyone was asked to uh, answer a certain question, namely, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? 
If you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And when it came time for Churchill to respond to this, everybody was very curious as to what, what he might say. He said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be, and here he paused to take his wife's hand, Lady Churchill's second husband. Stunning. Crowd roared in approval. He made some very good points with his wife that night. Ours is to honor our wives. Let's stand together. Thank the Lord for marriage. Such a full passage. There is much more mining to be done to get down to the gold, but we get the point. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this passage. Thank you that it transcends the, the ages. Thank you that you thought of everything when you created men and women. And uh, you knew what it would be like to live and lead together. I'm sure it was so easy in the Garden of Eden before sin entered. But now uh, we contend with our old natures and the war of selfishness that is uh, fought every day. So I pray that you would bless uh, homes that are represented here today. Bless your people as we all take our posts in the everydayness of living. We yield ourselves to your grace and your love, and we ask you to be the head of our home. In Jesus' name.